Nevertheless, I want to start off with a bit of a confession. And I, I, used to, and I want to apologize up front if this you know, might refer to you. But I used to get really annoyed whenever I met somebody and I would greet them and say, how are you? And their immediate response would be, I'm blessed. And I used to get annoyed for two reasons. One, I would think, well, what's up with the Christianese? What's up with the Christian jargon? What happened to the good old fashioned? I'm very well, thank you, Don. How are you? But secondly, I, I used to get annoyed because I would think, you know, I had a very warped idea of what it meant to be blessed. And when somebody said, I'm blessed, deep down I'm busy rolling my eyes and thinking, well, your wardrobe doesn't look particularly blessed. <laughs> I know the car that you drive doesn't really look like a blessed car. I know where you live. It's not a blessed neighborhood. And that was because I had this weird view that to be blessed was all to do with what you had, material possessions. But I've since come to appreciate that actually to be blessed, it's not about what you have, it's actually about who you have. And uh, that's where we want to go this morning. I want to take us back. I believe that you have been doing a series on the life of David in the Old Testament. And so I thought, you know what, let me, let me stick to the Old Testament as well. And so dial it back a bit to the book of Genesis, to the story of Joseph. It's a very well-known story. For some of us, I think we've probably been hearing the story of Joseph ever since we were in a kid's church. But it would be remiss of me to assume that everyone knows the story. So let me give you a bit of a background to the story of Joseph. We're in Genesis chapter 39. Joseph is one of 12 brothers, the sons of one of the patriarchs of the Old Testament, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the sons of Jacob. It's a fairly broken and dysfunctional family, uh, marked by deceit, nepotism, envy, jealous, hatred. They're just in all sorts. And Jacob loves Joseph. Joseph is the beloved son. And Jacob doesn't really make much effort to hide it. And so this creates tension between Joseph and his brothers. They hate him because he is the preferred son. And on one occasion, God gives Joseph these dreams that sort of predict that he will become someone great and to whom his brothers will come and bow down in honor of him. This angers the brothers. They're livid and they conspire to get rid of Joseph. They want to kill him initially, but then they decide, actually, you know what? Let's not have the blood on our hands. And so what do they do? They decide to sell Joseph to a bunch of traders who are on their way to Egypt. They come back with Joseph's coat. Uh, it is covered in blood. And they tell Jacob that, actually, we don't know what happened to Joseph, but a wild animal has gotten the better of him. Jacob is broken, he is beyond being consoled, and he just thinks he's lost his dear son. And meanwhile, the brothers don't actually come clean on what they've done to, to Joseph. So we pick up the story from there. Joseph is on his way to, to Egypt in 39. I'm going to read it. It's a long passage, but I think we really need to read all of it to get the full understanding of where we're going this morning. Right. Now, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, 
bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph and he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and all of that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So he left in Joseph's care everything he had. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now Joseph was well-built and handsome. You could call him a Hebrew hunk. <laughs> and after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to make sport of us. It's an interesting way of saying this. I don't know why this translation says that, but it's basically to make fun of us and to ridicule us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me screaming for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, this is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put, to Joseph, so the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison. And he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Every story has a plot. And every plot usually has a climax. And I don't think anyone would dispute the fact that the climax of this story is the seduction of Joseph by his boss's wife and the injustice that follows thereafter. And we could spend the next 30 or so minutes just focusing on that scene and talking about the noble character of Joseph and how you avoid temptation and how you stay pure. But if we did that, we would miss the point of the story. 
Because the story is about Joseph, but it's not about Joseph. Joseph is not even the hero in this story. I don't know if you noticed it, but four times we're told that the Lord was with Joseph. That even though life seemed to be taking him through the mill, the Lord did not abandon him. The Lord stayed close to Joseph. What's also interesting is that we find that the name God itself is only used once in reference to sin. But we find the name of God, Lord, which in you know, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and this is you know, the, the Hebrew name Yahweh, or Jehovah sometimes we say, that's translated to Lord. This is God's covenant name. It's the name of a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, the one who makes promises and delivers on those promises every single time. So there is a covenant at play here. And God is fulfilling his covenant. Now, when we come to the story here, we find that Joseph has been trafficked into Egypt. He's in a new country. He doesn't know anyone. He doesn't speak the language. He doesn't know the culture. And he's dealing with the trauma of being rejected by his own family. And then now he has to deal with the trauma of being sold into slavery. This is a young man, a teenager, who was the favored son of Jacob. It's kind of like a reversal of the story of rags to riches. Because this is a young man who grew up in privilege. Because his father, Jacob, was very wealthy. He's probably wondering, well, what's happened to the dreams that God gave me? They don't seem to be going the way that initially would have thought they were going. So not only is he dealing with the trauma of rejection, he's dealing with the trauma of being sold into slavery. And he ends up being bought by this man who appears to be a powerful man in Egypt, Potiphar. He's captain of the guards, what we'd call probably today chief of police, of chief security officer. And that's where Joseph finds himself. But God hasn't abandoned him. And in no time at all, Joseph begins to prosper. Joseph is prospering in exile. This is a man who probably has the gift of administration. He has great wisdom and just an ability to execute his duties diligently. And Potiphar recognizes this. And I don't think Potiphar necessarily knew that God, you know, Joseph was being blessed by the Lord. He probably just recognized that this is a young man with special abilities that have been given to him by a higher power. So what does Potiphar do? Potiphar promotes Joseph from slave to chief slave. And the moment he does that, God begins to bless Potiphar. The blessing of the Lord is on Potiphar, is on everything that Potiphar has in the house, in the fields. Potiphar is being blessed beyond his imagination. And probably things go very well for a few years. Until this Hebrew hunk catches the lustful eye of the boss's wife. 
And Potiphar's wife makes Joseph an offer. Potiphar's wife wants an affair. And she seduces Potiphar. Sorry, she seduces Joseph. In that moment, sin is crouching at the door of Joseph's heart. Sin wants to have Joseph. It wants to devour him. But we find that Joseph's response tells us something about his understanding of what it means to be a faithful steward. And his response is on two planes. There's a horizontal plane and there's a vertical plane. On the horizontal plane, he says, hey, look at what my master has given to me. Look at how much authority I've been given. How can I now go and betray my master? But it doesn't stop there because he understands that there is a horizontal plane, or sorry, a vertical plane where the stakes are higher. And he says, how can I do such a wicked thing against my God? <coughs> Joseph, the master's wife, desires you. The master's wife has called you, Joseph. No one has to know. It's just the two of us. This will be our little secret. Joseph's response tells us that he understands that even though this could be a secret between him and Potiphar's wife, there's one who is always watching. That God, who is permanently present, would be watching. Joseph is not just saying no to sin. He's also saying yes to living for the glory of God. And so he rejects and pushes Potiphar's wife away. But the harassment at the office doesn't stop. It continues. And it escalates to the point where Potiphar's wife now accuses Joseph of trying to rape him. And so she keeps his cloak and when Potiphar comes back, she tells a story. She's lying. But knowing how much Potiphar has been blessed because of Joseph, you would think there would be some semblance of justice. And yet he sends Joseph to prison. It's wrong. And it's unfair. Now, even though he sends her to prison, sends Joseph to prison, there actually is an element of mercy here. Because back in ancient Egypt, one, Joseph is a foreigner. Secondly, he is a slave. Allegations of attempted rape would have been death penalty immediately. And I think that the fact that Potiphar sends Joseph to prison seems to suggest that he knew that his wife wasn't quite telling the truth. But it's still wrong. The beloved son of Jacob has become the suffering servant. Rejected, abused, humiliated, wrongly accused, wrongly convicted.
There is nothing about Joseph's life that I would want for myself. There's nothing about Joseph's life in this passage that I desire. There is one thing, though, that I would want for myself. I want to be Potiphar. I want to be around somebody who is so blessed that their blessings become my blessings. And when I look at the story here of how Potiphar is being blessed because of Joseph, it just seems so unfair. Why should Potiphar be blessed because of a servant or a slave that he bought himself? The natural mind in me says, that's not fair. You don't deserve this. Is that my phone? Thought I, sorry. <laughs> it's never happened before. It has to happen today. But there is nothing that is fair about Potiphar being blessed because of a slave that he bought. What's going on here? Why should God be blessing Potiphar? Now, for you to enjoy reading the Bible, for you to understand all the stories in the Bible, it helps if you have an appreciation of the overarching story of the Bible. That from the book of Genesis all the way through to the New Testament, there is this progressive and unfolding revelation of God's salvation plan that finds its fulfillment in Christ Jesus. And so if we're saying here that there's a covenant at play because the Lord was with Joseph all the time, then we need to find the covenant that contains the blessing in which Joseph is operating and in which Potiphar is enjoying. And so we need to dial back a bit to Genesis chapter 12. God is speaking to Abraham. And the Lord said to Abraham, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This was given to Abraham, Joseph's great-grandfather. The blessing operated in Abraham's life. It operated in his son Isaac. It operated in Isaac's son Jacob and is now operating in Joseph's life. But do you see how when it starts, God says to Abraham, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. That land is the land of Canaan. But now we find that the blessing is operating in Egypt. It's operating in foreign territory. Why is that? That's because the blessing was never meant to just be for the Jews, was never just meant to be contained to the land of Canaan, in, Abra in God's promise to Abraham, he says to, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Potiphar is not Jewish. Potiphar is Egyptian. 
Potiphar is a Gentile. And so we find the blessing of God starting to operate in a foreign territory for a Gentile. Gentile is a word the Bible uses to describe those who are not Jewish. You and I, if you're sitting here and you're not Jewish, you're a Gentile. Joseph is not in the wrong country. Joseph is in the right country. Because already we're starting to see snippets. We're starting to see a glimpse of God's salvation plan. That it's for the Gentiles and not just contained to Canaan, but for all nations. Now, the Apostle Paul picks this up in the book of Galatians. We've just started a series on the book of Galatians. Such a fantastic book. And Paul wrote this letter to the churches in the territory of Galatia. They had sort of started abandoning the basics and the fundamentals of what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. That you come to Christ through faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. And they'd started to operate and to think that they could achieve and work their way towards salvation. They had become legalistic, is the word we use. Because now they're starting to follow all these commandments and ordinances and traditions of the law of Moses. And so Paul writes this strong letter to them to correct that. And in chapter Chapter 3, he says, Consider Abraham. He's referring back now to Genesis 12. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. The currency of this blessing is faith. Did you notice how in the story of Joseph and Potiphar, the author was very clear to say from the time that Potiphar put Joseph in charge of everything, the Lord began to bless the Egyptian. It didn't happen before that, when Joseph was just going about his normal business. However, when Potiphar released everything and trusted Joseph with everything he owned, the blessing of the Lord came into his life. So I would argue that like Potiphar, who needed to trust another with everything that he owned, the blessing of God for us Gentiles today comes by faith. We are called to trust another. That another is none other than Jesus Christ himself. That's how the blessing comes. So the blessing of God is released through faith in Jesus Christ. Potiphar didn't deserve it. It came by grace. Salvation to you and I comes undeserved. It comes by grace. And that's not all. So what is it about the blessing? Once you have put faith, once you've trusted Christ with everything, to experience the fullness of God's blessing requires that you 
trust Christ with everything about your existence, your own very life. But the blessing of God doesn't stop there. He goes on to say, I just want to read that again. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. God would justify the Gentiles. The word justify is one that the Bible uses to talk about being put into right standing with God. Cleared of your sin and made right before God. And I would argue that the story of Joseph and Potiphar, particularly the sin, or the scene, rather, of temptation, is one that is demonstrating a righteousness. The righteousness of Joseph. Now, you could push back and say, hey, Don, but aren't you like lowering the bar for righteousness? Because are you telling me that all it takes is just to push back and to say no to the advances of a woman that declares you righteous? And I would have to concede and say, you are absolutely right. That doesn't make you righteous. But I would say then, but anyone who says no to sin because they recognize that it is an offense against the holy God is someone I think is in right standing with God. And we see that here. This is chapter 39. Chapter 38 has a bizarre story that whenever I have read it, I've always wondered, why is this story in the middle of Joseph's story? It is the story of Judah, Joseph's brother, who through a lapse of judgment, he ends up sleeping with his daughter-in-law, Tamar, thinking that she was a prostitute. And you wonder, what, what is that story doing there? It just seems to interrupt the flow of Joseph's story. But then when you look at how Joseph said no to his wife, you, re you realize that the, the author is drawing a contrast between Judah and Joseph. That where Judah failed morally, Joseph has passed. I'm starting to think that perhaps Joseph is a type of Christ. In other words, Joseph's life is pointing, it is foreshadowing towards what we will see in Christ. Because we know that Christ, the Bible tells us that Christ was tempted. He was tempted in every way, but yet was without sin. So where you and I have failed, Christ has lived perfectly for us. Christ came lived a perfect life, fully obeyed the Father, fully met every requirement of the law that you and I could never meet. And therefore, he was qualified to die on the cross as the substitute sacrifice for our sins. Having lived the perfect life, you could think of his life as having a 10 out of 10 score. Complete perfection. And when you put your faith in Christ, his 10 out of 10 record becomes your record. And his righteousness is given to you. And you can stand before God declared not guilty. And with that righteousness, you and I, 
cannot fear judgment. When we come before God, we cannot fear judgment because in us or with us is the righteousness of Christ. That moment when Potiphar sends Joseph to jail was a moment of an unrighteous decision. In that moment, Potiphar was an unrighteous judge. And he reminds me of another unrighteous judge that we find in the New Testament. One who not only sent someone to prison, but actually sent someone to their death. An unrighteous judge by the name of Pontius Pilate. But you and I can stand before God. If you've put your faith in Christ, you stand before God, declared righteous, not having to fear judgment. You're not standing before a human judge who is prone to making errors and biased decisions. You're standing before a holy and a perfect judge. All condemnation has been taken away. All accusation has been removed. Because in you, you find you've been given the righteousness of Christ. So the blessing of God brings with it righteousness. But that's not all. It gets even better. Paul goes on in Galatians 3, and he says, He redeemed us, referring to Christ. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham, the blessing of what? The blessing of righteousness given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. You and I, because of the righteousness of Christ, we now have the Spirit of God living inside of us. We no longer need to look at Genesis 39 and, and, and think Joseph was so privileged to have the permanent presence of God because you and I today have the permanent presence of God by His Holy Spirit. Genesis 39 is not the story of a diligent employee. It is not the story of someone of noble character who can refuse and face up to temptation and say no. As noble as those things are, Genesis 39 is this episode and this grand narrative of Scripture that reaches its grand finale when Christ is presented. Emmanuel, God with us. Right from the beginning of of time in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned and were banished from the presence of God. This is what God's plan has always been about. God has been working this plan to restore the relationship with His creation, to restore the relationship with you and I, that He might be with us. And so through 39, we're seeing God's redemption story that he would desire to be not just with the Jews, his chosen nation, but his desire that all nations will become blessed and blessed with the righteousness of God so that God can come and dwell in us, be with us by his Holy Spirit. This is the gift 
of God to us. I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know what's happening in your workplace. I don't know what temptations you're facing. I don't know what family issues you're going through. I'm not here to tell you and to give you the solutions to the problems that you're facing. What I am here to do is to remind you that God is with you and God is for you. Just think about this. The God who created the heavens and the earth by his spoken word. The God who holds everything together by his spoken word. The God who knows your innermost thoughts. The God who sustains you and sustains the lives of seven billion other people on this planet. The God who knows everything. The God who is all-powerful. That God dwells inside of you. How can your life be ordinary when you have such a God with you and in you? How can your families be ordinary when you have such a God with you? How can it be when you come together in your community groups? How can you have ordinary gatherings? How can you come to church on a Sunday expecting the ordinary when you have such a God? How can your workplaces be ordinary when you have such a God? If you're sitting here and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, I'm glad you're here. But if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, I just have one question for you. When you're in a time of crisis, who is it that you turn to? Who has the ability to comfort you, the ability to encourage you? Who is it that is loving, that is gracious, that is merciful, that is faithful, that knows your tomorrow, that controls your tomorrow? Who in your life fits that description? Thank you. I didn't think so. No one does. The same Jesus, his desire is to be with you. And all that is required is for you to put your faith in him and to trust in him. The blessed life is not about how much you have. In terms of things, the blessed life is about how much of a person you have. And that person is the person of the Holy Spirit. Often when you preach, people have questions in their minds like, okay, so what do I do with this? Because we always want to be told what to do. Reminds me of a time in John chapter 6, I think, the people come to Jesus and say, so what must we do? And Jesus says, believe in the one that he sent.
That's my charge for you this morning, is to believe that God is with you. I'm going to pray. Father, I want to thank you for this community. Lord, I want to thank you for scripture that instructs us, it corrects us, it trains us for righteousness. I thank you, Lord, that scripture has the power to reveal Christ to us. Father, I want to thank you for my fellow brothers and sisters here, that you are with them, that you are for them. Whether life is going pear-shaped or whether things are amazing, you are for them and you are with them. Father, I want to pray, even right now, that you'd pour out your spirit here. Lord, we cannot live this life in our own strength. Lord, we need the power of your spirit. Even for this moment and the next and tomorrow and the coming weeks and years, Father, we do not want to be relying on ourselves, for we know where that will lead us. But Father, we want to live for the glory of your name, and you have made available to us your Holy Spirit. Father, I want to pray that people here would be tapping into the power of your Spirit. And Lord, not just to be like walking into a river and you know, being happy with just being ankle deep, but I pray, God, that people will be dipping in, like diving in, swimming in, being drowned in the presence of your Spirit. Would you come, Father, right now? Would you encourage them? Would you cause this truth, Father, to bear on their consciences? That, Father, whatever situation there may be, that, Father, you would affirm that you are the one who is permanently present with them. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.